Here we are. It's Wednesday again, and we're getting some foul weather. Go figure. Somebody asked me what day of the week it is. Well, I knew it was Wednesday because it was raining outside, and so it just seems to follow us this season on Wednesdays. I'm glad you're here. Had a great afternoon class. Had 29 this afternoon in our class, so it was a good class. And we're in chapter 33, and, and I was just thinking about the lesson before going in this afternoon. I was thinking about the book of Isaiah and what a blessing it's been to me personally. I was just thinking about some of the things I've learned. And, of course, Isaiah begins with God telling him to express his displeasure over the wickedness of Judah and that he's going to bring a great judgment. Much of Isaiah, as you well know, has been God's um, declaration of judgment against his people. They were wicked. The priests even were drunkards. There was much idolatry going on, and God had enough, and he said, I'm going to judge you. And he was going to use the Assyrians initially to judge them, followed by the Babylonians, of course. But what amazes me and has amazed me throughout the book, and I've made reference to it several times, and that is in the midst of this severe declaration of judgment, God repeatedly reveals himself as a merciful God. To the very people to whom he is saying, I'm going to judge you, he then pulls back his judgment and says, but let me show you a glimpse into the future. Let me show you what it's going to be like in the millennium. Let me show you what it's going to be like when the Messiah rules and reigns, when there will be a restored relationship between you and me, and it's glorious, beyond belief. And then he comes back and says, okay, now let me bring you back to reality, what we are right now, and let me show you the judgment. Um, if you notice in your notes, it begins with Roman numeral 1 going right into Roman numeral 2, and that's because the first verse is like an introduction to the chapter. It gives the introduction, and then in verse number 2, it, uh, it takes off running. So I'm going to read verse 1, pray, and then we'll get into our lesson. Isaiah 33, verse 1. Woe to thee that spoilest, and thou wast not spoiled, and dealest treacherously, and they dealt not treacherously with thee. When thou shalt cease to spoil, thou shalt be spoiled. And when thou shalt make an end to deal treacherously, they shall deal treacherously with thee. If you're taking notes, Roman number one is destroyers will be destroyed. Destroyers will be destroyed. And let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your love and your goodness, and thank you for giving to us this amazing book of Isaiah. And I pray this evening, Lord, that you will meet with us, that you will teach us. Spirit of God, would you quicken our minds and give to us what we need tonight? I pray, Lord, that you'll be glorified throughout, for we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. What's this mean? Destroyers will be destroyed. Now, there seems to be several possibilities that this verse addresses. The immediate threat to Judah was Assyria coming their way and their king Sennacherib. It also apply, however, to Nebuchadnezzar, who would be following Sennacherib of Babylon. It could also look forward to the tribulation, where the Antichrist becomes a threat to God's people specifically. In any case, God's sovereignty is fully on display here. As every world power 
that puffs out their chest and exercises their power will one day fall beneath the foot of our Lord and Savior. Revelation 13.10 says, He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. What we're going to see tonight is many dual applications. Applications that deal with their present uh, judgment against Syria, and then a future look to, their, to the uh, tribulation judgment. And so some of them are pretty clear. You can tell in the context. Some of them are a little cloudy. I'm not sure which is which. I'll mention those as we go. But he goes back and forth between immediate and a look to the future. And so let's start in verse number 2, which says, O Lord, be gracious unto us. We have waited for thee. Be thou their arm every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. Roman number 2 is God responds to the cry of his people. When God's people cry out to him, he's there. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, he's told us. Letter A, God's people plead with God for help. O Lord, be gracious unto us, the verse begins. Here's a prayer by God's people pleading for God's help, and it might be during the reign of Hezekiah, as they learned of Assyria's advancements. O Lord, Hezekiah very likely pleaded, be gracious unto us. However, it could also, at the very same time, reflect the cry of the saints during the tribulation, crying out for God to deliver them. One thing I found interesting was my commentators all were all over the place on this next phrase, be thou their arm every morning. The phrase, that phrase could suggest God's using his arm in judgment against the Assyrian army. It sounds like be thou their arm or be the enemy's strength, but I don't think that's what he's suggesting. I think he's saying be an arm against them. God's people have always had as their God a loving and merciful ear with which to pray. Psalm 37, 39, But the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. Tonight, when you have needs, you can go to God as your source of strength. No matter what the problem, you can run to God. And what was so tragic is Judah could have also. Judah, as wicked as they were, could have begged God's forgiveness, and God would have been there. That's why he reveals his merciful side to them so frequently, I think, it's to win them back. It's to give them an opportunity to repent, for which you never see the nation repenting. It doesn't happen. Letter B, the return of Christ will strike fear into the nations. Verse 3, at the noise of the tumult, the people fled. At the lifting up of thyself, the nations were scattered. This may be a look at Assyria's army encamped outside of Jerusalem. And during the night, God destroyed 185,000 of them to where in the morning they woke up and they found them all dead bodies. It may be that, but I don't think so, and here's why. It describes a tumult at the noise of the tumult. Well, if there were a great noise, wouldn't it have woken the people up in Jerusalem? But it didn't. God says quietly, destroy them. So it doesn't seem like that. And then it says, um, at the lifting up of thyself, the nations, not nation, Assyria. 
So Jerusalem slept through the evening that God destroyed the 185,000 Assyrians. So it might simply be a reference to the tribulation where all the nations will be involved. The second coming of Christ will bring a vast scattering of the nations as he destroys them with his word. In Psalm 46, verse 6, the heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved, he uttered his voice, the earth melted. Letter C. Israel would enjoy great spoil after Christ's decisive victory. Verse 4, and your spoil shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar. As the running to and fro of locusts, shall he run upon them. Well, I can't speak to the caterpillar, but I do have a comprehension of the locusts. I've seen pictures of locusts in parts of Africa. So thick, the sky was black with them. And I'm told in reading about the different famines that when these locusts uh, uh, propagate so much, they can come in and just devastate all of vegetation. They destroy fields, they destroy crops. And this could very well likely be describing what he's talking about here. As the people of Jerusalem realized the Assyrian army had been annihilated just outside their gates, they spoiled their tents and brought back a great spoil. In 2 Chronicles 32:22, thus, thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all other and guided them on every side. And many brought gifts unto the Lord to Jerusalem, and presents to Hezekiah king of Judah, so that he was magnified in the sight of all nations from thenceforth. There is a second, second application here, however, that looks to Israel's prosperity as Christ takes control of the nations after his return. Again, that, that dual look, immediate to the Assyrians and and during the tribulation as a second look. Letter D, Jerusalem will be filled with righteousness under Christ's reign. Verse 5, the Lord is exalted, for he dwelleth on high. He hath filled Zion with judgment and righteousness. I believe the definition of righteous, or Zion here is referring to Jerusalem. Well, everything I read does not describe Jerusalem being filled with righteousness today. I can't picture a time where Jerusalem was filled with righteousness, but there will be a time where Jerusalem will be filled with judgment and righteousness. We can rejoice as the Lord is exalted. We seek to lift Him up in our private worship and collectively as we meet together on Sundays. The focus in this verse seems to look forward to Christ's reign in the millennium. Until now, Jerusalem has not been filled with His judgment and righteousness, but it will be under His majestic reign. Isaiah 4, verse 2 and following, In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion, and he that remaineth in Jerusalem, shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. Talking about a time where those remaining in Jerusalem, 
Then he refers to the living. Well, I think he's looking at time at the end of the tribulation, a time when Jesus returns in his second coming. We come with him. And at, at Battle of Armageddon, he destroys all the unsaved, setting up his millennial kingdom to step into his thousand-year reign. Well, the Bible says in one place that all Israel will be saved. We've talked about this before. At what point in history will all Israel be saved? Only when all the unsaved are killed. So the millennium will begin with all saved people. Israel will be all saved because the battle of Armageddon, the unsaved or the wicked, are, are destroyed by the Lord. So I think that's what this is talking about, Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 2 and following. Letter E, wisdom and knowledge are blessings of the Lord. Verse 6, and wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times and strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. I like that last phrase. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Now think about that. One of the hallmarks of the reign of Christ will be the wisdom and knowledge that he provides. Under his leadership, foolish decisions on the part of government will no longer be part of everyday life. Can you imagine reading the news and seeing no foolishness come out of the governments? Can you imagine? Can you imagine every single judicial decision made by the government, every one of them, is righteous and wise? It will be that as Jesus rules and reigns. These truths are just as applicable today. Wisdom and knowledge must be diligently pursued by everyone in any position of leadership, by those in companies, by mothers and fathers who are desperately in need of wisdom and knowledge on a daily basis. Our salvation is strengthened by these qualities. When I reach for my phone and pick it up, somebody's calling, my prayer is for wisdom. God, give me wisdom as I deal with this situation. When I'm dealing with decisions to be made, God, give me wisdom in this decision. I need wisdom. I need the stability of wisdom. And, of course, James says, do you lack wisdom? <laughs> if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. Proverbs 4, verse 5. Oh, by the way, the fear of the Lord, which is his treasure. What's that mean? Well, I think that it's saying that the fear of the Lord is precious to both the bearer of the fear of the Lord and to God as it brings him glory. Proverbs 4 and verse 5, get wisdom, get understanding. Forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. Number three, Judah's judgment. Judah's judgment. Letter A, efforts toward peace will fail. Verse 7, Behold, their valiant ones shall cry without. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. Well, with views to both their immediate fear of invasion of the Assyrians and to the future day of the Lord, the tribulation, there would be much crying and bitter weeping over the destruction in and around their beloved city. Hezekiah had likely sent ambassadors, ambassadors of peace, to the Assyrians 
to try and secure peace, but it was to no avail. In 2 Kings 19.1, And it came to pass, when King Hezekiah heard it, he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, which was over the household, and Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said unto him, Thus saith Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and of rebuke and blasphemy, for the children are come to the birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. There may be those sent from heathen nations to try and secure peace with Christ, only to find out that he demands complete submission. Maybe what 30, verse number 7 is also saying. Letter B. Judah's covenants will be broken. We'll be thinking about that. Judah's covenants will be broken. Can you think of times where covenants are broken? Verse number 8, the highways lie waste. The wayfaring man ceaseth. He hath broken the covenant. He hath despised the cities. He regardeth no man. Once again, I see dual applications here. Sennacherib had placed a heavy fine on Judah. They paid it. They removed the gold off the doors of the temple. In spite of paying, making their payment in full, Assyria invaded anyway, breaking their agreement. We see this in 2 Kings 18, verse 14. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish, saying, I've offended. Return from me. That which thou puttest on me will I bear. In other words, I'll pay whatever fine you place on me. Just return. <laughs> and the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. At that time did Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. What did Assyria do? And the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshakeh from Lachish to king Hezekiah with a great host against Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they were come up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is in the highway of the fuller's field. This passage can also look to the midpoint of the tribulation. Can you think of a breaking of the covenant during the midpoint of the tribulation? Sure, the Antichrist. When the Antichrist breaks his agreement or his treaty with Israel and barges into the temple where he commits the abomination of desolation by sacrificing a pig on the altar, the Antichrist will regard no man when he comes. Matthew 24, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Letter C. World powers will wreak havoc against Judah. Verse 9, the earth mourneth and languisheth. Lebanon is ashamed and hewn down. 
Sharon is like a weakness, a wilderness. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. The land of uh, the nation of Assyria, Assyria would certainly bring a desolation to the countryside around Jerusalem. So as Assyria encamped around Jerusalem, cutting off the supply into Jerusalem, trying to starve them to death, they also destroyed all the fields around Jerusalem. Surrounding regions would be utterly destroyed. Well, the same could take us to the destruction done by the Antichrist. Enemies around the world will converge on Israel, destroying everything in their path. Isaiah 24, 19, the earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage. And the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again. Number four, I like this. God is always greater. God is always greater. Verse number 10, Now will I rise, saith the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I lift up myself. I see a God sitting down, watching. Watching all that's going on. Watching the wickedness of Judah. Watching the priests as they're drunken, sitting down. But at some point, he's going to stand up. And when he stands, <laughs> look out. Letter A, God was glorified against Assyria, but much more against the Antichrist. God was glorified at the utter defeat of the Assyrian army. When those 185,000 were completely destroyed, God was glorified. But he will be much more exalted in his defeat at Armageddon, at the end of the tribulation. His voice will defeat all of the heathen who will have risen up against him. Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. Letter B. Intentions of conquering Jerusalem get blown away. Verse 11. Ye shall conceive chaff. Ye shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you. <laughs> my, my wife makes a soup. It's, um, it's, it's a taco soup. And um, she doesn't let me have it very often because one of the spices in that taco soup doesn't set well with my breath. And the next day, I breathe this fire. And so she's not crazy about that. I love the soup. It's one of my favorites. It's delicious. But for some reason, my body does not appreciate it, apparently. doesn't bother me, <laughs> but it bothers her as I breathe fire. Well, notice the fire being talked about. Your breath as fire, it says, shall devour you. The Assyrian goal of defeating Judah and Jerusalem would result in mere chaff and stubble. Sennacherib's breath or his anger against Judah will actually flash back against him and destroy him. His defeat would result in his humiliation and soon murder by his two sons. You remember, Sennacherib's army was all defeated, 185,000, and he went back to uh, Assyria with his tail between his legs 
And it wasn't long before he was murdered by his two sons in shame. In Isaiah 31, verse 8, Then shall the Assyrian fall with the sword, but not of a mighty man, and the sword not of a mean or common man, shall devour him, but he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be discomfited, and he shall pass over to his stronghold for fear, and his princes shall be afraid of the ensign or flag, saith the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, and his furnace in Jerusalem. Second application. Of course, the Antichrist, no matter how powerful he becomes, will ultimately see his efforts dry up and blow away as well. He will be met with a greater fire, with a capital F, who will cast him into hell. Revelation 19.20, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of burning, like a fire burning with brimstone. Letter C. The end of the enemies of God is always destruction and always certain. Verse 12. And the people shall be as the burnings of lime. As thorns cut up shall they be burned in the fire. When the people of Jerusalem that next morning discovered the dead bodies of the Assyrian army, they could describe them as being destroyed by God. Figuratively, they are here said to have been burned like limestone to achieve lime, or thorns to produce heat. Their destruction was decisive and sudden. Apparently, if you take limestone and you heat it up enough, it will turn into lime. This is referred to in Amos 2.1, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. The imagery may find even a more precise fit when considering the fate of the Antichrist, who will be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Letter D. God will be feared and glorified. Verse 13. Hear, ye that are far off, what I have done, and ye that are near, acknowledge my might. Now, following the Assyrian decimation of 185,000 deaths, nations surrounding Judah obviously learned of the defeat and took special note of the powerful God of the Jews. Do you think that that defeat just stayed with them and nobody knew about it? Well, of course, all the nations surrounding heard about that, and God got the glory. Likely, a more precise application is when the nations react to Christ's overwhelming defeat of the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet, along with the destruction of Babylon. God will have the attention of the entire world at that time. I was talking to Sean before the service tonight. We're talking about this afternoon. I don't know, but I've struggled with a concept. I've always thought... With the, with the development of the, the, uh, the Internet, that it'd be easy for all the world to see what goes on during the tribulation. The world is supposed to all see the two witnesses. And when they are killed, the, all around the world will see them lying in the streets. Well, that makes total sense with Internet. 
But what if the internet has been completely knocked out because of the celestial cataclysmic events that occur at the tribulation? What if all the electric, uh, electricity is all knocked out because of, again, the cataclysmic events? Meteors hitting the earth and all sorts of crazy things going on. Well, if that's the case, then how will it be seen around the world? I don't know the answer, but won't it be interesting to see <laughs> from heaven as we look down there? <laughs> we won't be here to see it. I don't know the answer. I don't know. Perhaps, perhaps the world will have restored internet just for that event. I don't know the answer to that. Revelation 18, 9 says, And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. Revelation 19, 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Number one, the wicked in Jerusalem begin to fear God's judgment. Now, what I just read is really quite profound if you think about it. The wicked in Jerusalem begin to fear God's judgment. In verse 14, the sinners in Zion, Jerusalem, are afraid. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Again, in Jerusalem. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Do you remember as the book of Isaiah begins, the spiritual state of Judah? It's rancid. It's, it's horrible. It's deplorable. Again, the priests, he says, he condemns them because they're all drunkards. There's much idolatry in the land. They are, they're not worshiping God like they should be. And so the sinners in Zion are afraid. Assyria's great defeat would bring fear throughout the wicked among God's people as well. Though Hezekiah was a righteous king, most of his people still bore the spiritual effects of his predecessors. In, in reading through, I oftentimes did not catch this. Because when you read the, through the, the account of uh, Judah, and you get to Hezekiah, here's this great king. Did, he, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And so you just uh, make this assumption wrongly, that all of his people were righteous as well. But you know human nature well enough to know that just because the leader is righteous does not mean all the people are righteous, particularly when those people have, have, been, have been a very low moral ebb with the previous kings. And then along comes a righteous king trying to bring a revival, and man, he's just slodging through the mud trying to get them to come with him. Most of the people did not follow him, just a remnant. So we see here, there is always a remnant, number two, of the righteous, even in dark days of oppression. There's, even, there's always a remnant of the righteous, even in dark days of oppression. Verse 15, he that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly, he that despiseth the gain of oppressions, and shaketh his hands from holding of bribes, that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood, and shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. This is a man that walks righteously. So here's a list of the remnant 
that's righteous under Hezekiah. It was a small remnant, but they remained true and faithful to God and His ways. In the tribulation, there will also be a remnant, or those saved during the tribulation, marking themselves for certain persecution and very likely martyrdom. Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, Keep ye judgment, and do justice. For my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold upon it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. So he's saying, no matter how dark it is out there, nationally there will be a remnant. There will always be a remnant, even in dark days of oppression. Number three, special days, I'm sorry, special blessings upon the faithful. Special blessings upon the faithful. Verse 16, he shall dwell on high. His place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks. Bread shall be given him. His waters shall be sure. This seems to look at God's favor and protection of his people in the coming kingdom, especially those who walked faithfully to him during the fires of the tribulation who would receive his special provision. The word munitions here is the word from where we get Masada. Masada, it means a rock fortress. In the day of the Lord, those who have maintained a consistent walk with Christ will be afforded the best places to reside. God will hide them in these rock fortresses. Proverbs 1.33, But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely, and shall be quiet from fear of evil. Habakkuk 3.19, The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hind's feet. He will make me to walk upon mine high places, to the chief singer upon stringed instruments. Letter E. Jesus will be seen in his glory. I love this. Verse 17. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. They shall behold the land that is very far off. This is likely a vision to the Lord's return in power and glory, as all eyes will see him coming in his glory. He will be beautiful to those trusting and loving him, but he will be fearful to the wicked. The land that is very far off, I don't know, maybe refers to heaven. Perhaps in the millennium, we will be afforded opportunities to see beyond its gates periodically. I don't know. 2 Corinthians 4.18 While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. John 17.24 Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. Why? Listen to this. That they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. I want my disciples to see me in my glory, he said. Number five. Judah's fears will be forgotten. Verse 18. Thine heart shall meditate terror. Where is the scribe? Where is the receiver? Where is he that counted the tire, towers? <laughs> Letter A, remembering their fears. 
The idea, I think, here is Judah meditating or remembering the terror. It could allude to the Assyrian invasion, but the following passages seem to direct more to the day of the Lord. They asked about officers here, and they mentioned three. Officers overseeing their military. Where is the scribe or the one responsible for numbering the soldiers? Where is the receiver, the treasurer responsible for doling out pay of the soldiers, keeping them encouraged enough to fight? Where is he that counted the towers or the engineers responsible for caring for the fortifications? When the days were the darkest, the people felt forsaken by their leaders. That's what he's saying. 1 Samuel 30 and verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Letter B. God's people will never again need to fear an oppressor. Verse, 30, verse 19, Thou shalt not see a fierce people, a people of a deeper speech than thou canst perceive, of a stammering tongue that thou canst not understand. Let's go beyond Christ's return, the second coming of Christ. God's people then will never again need to fear an invading army. Jesus sets up his millennial reign. He rules and reigns as king. Every nation will become subservient to Christ. Foreign invaders who came with foreign languages would not harm them again. It is possible that the mention of a deeper speech and a stammering tongue could possibly refer to God's use of foreign languages or foreign tongues as a warning of His judgment. We see this in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign not for them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them that believe. God used foreign languages as a sign of judgment. Letter C. By the way, very quickly, foreign languages. At Pentecost, one of the signs of the Spirit's filling was the, the tongues, being able to speak in one language and have other people hear the language. God says that demonstration of His power in tongues or foreign languages was a sign of judgment to come. And we know in 70 A.D. that judgment did fall as Rome destroyed Jerusalem. Verse number 20. Look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities. Thine eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down. Not one of the stakes thereof shall ever be removed, neither shall any of the cords thereof be broken. Letter C, Jerusalem will finally be at peace. In the day of Christ's reign, Jerusalem will be at peace and quietness. Described as a tabernacle that shall not be taken down, it will stand resolutely without fear of any enemies. Jerusalem has never experienced this kind of peace. It will only happen during the millennium. Isaiah 32, 18, And my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation, and in sure dwellings, and in a quiet resting place. 
Letter D, the millennial Jerusalem will be rich in rivers and streams. Now, I have not been to Jerusalem. Randy, would you say that Jerusalem today is flowing with rivers and streams? No. <laughs> In fact, is, is, is the, the, the Kidron is a brook, that's what I'm told, right? It's not a big stream. It's just... Yes. Really? Huh, interesting. Verse number 21. But there the glorious Lord will be unto us a place of broad rivers and streams, wherein shall go no galley with oars, neither shall gallant ship pass thereby. Not like Jerusalem has ever had, the Old Testament prophecy prophesies wide rivers and streams in that day. There have only been some small brooks like Kidron, but in that day, Jerusalem will abound with water. Ezekiel 47.1 Afterward he brought me again to the door of the house, and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward, for the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under the right side of the house, at the south side of the altar. Then brought he me out of the way, out of the gate northward, and led me about the way without under the utter gate, by the way that looketh eastward. And behold, there ran out waters on the right side. In Zechariah 14.8. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and winter shall it be. <laughs> it talks about no galley with oars, neither gallant ship pass by. So... Jerusalem will not need fear any naval hostilities in that day, as Christ will see all and rule all. Jerusalem will be safe from all forms of attack. I like that. Letter E. Jerusalem will be ruled by the judge, lawgiver, and king. Verse 22. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, and the Lord is our king. He will save us. In that day, Jerusalem will begin under a theocracy, under the reign of Messiah, the Prince of Peace. He will fulfill the judicial, legislative, and administrative functions as his king. And he will do those functions himself in person. Isaiah 11, 4. But with the righteousness, I'm sorry, with the righteous, yeah, with, but, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Number six, God's goodness to his people. Verse 23, thy tacklings are loosed. They could not well strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. Then is the prey, P-R-E-Y, of a great spoil divided. The lame take the prey. Hmm. Mast, spreading the sails, sounds like a ship here. Letter A, God's enemies are as sure as destroyed. This is apparently a description of a ship at the mercy of a storm at sea. It is breaking apart and will soon sink. This may have some immediate reference to the Assyrians. They who were the predators against Judah were about to become the prey. 
but it can also look to the future to the destruction of the enemies of God's people and what will happen to them when Jesus returns in his glory. Psalm 68, 11, the Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. King of armies did flee apace, and she that tarried at home divided the spoil. Verse 24, and the inhabitants shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. Letter B, God's people will experience good health physically and spiritually. And I read it too early. And the inhabitants shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. They're not, they can't say, I'm sick. They can't say, I am sick. Why? Because they will be ruled by the great physician. In the day of the Lord's reign, residents of Jerusalem will not get sick. Being ruled by their healer, capital H, they will walk in perfect health. All who reside therein will have had their sin completely forgiven by their Savior, their Redeemer, their King. Micah 7, 18, Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Whew. I started by telling you about God's mercy. In the midst of his declaration of judgment, God reveals his mercy. And we close the chapter by God revealing his mercy. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful for God's mercy. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for your love and blessing and for chapter 33 in Isaiah. As we look to Isaiah's pronouncements of judgment, Lord, these are, these are dire times as the nation of Assyria was used to judge your people. And then looking to the future time where the nations will all gather against Jerusalem. A frightful, fearful time. Lord, throughout, we see how you are honored and glorified. And I pray, Lord, that we, your people, will continue to keep our eyes focused upon you, remembering to thank you for your mercy. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, and God bless you.